Well, thanks, uh, Stuart, for, uh, for that reading. It's, uh, it's a great bit of the Bible to, uh, to bring before us, and we're going to be unpacking this, uh, this theme of resurrection this morning. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God might help us to understand what we hear today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that John recorded. Thank you, Father, that it's designed to bring faith and new life. And I pray today that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our ears, help us to concentrate, soften our hearts, Father, so that we might find afresh your Son, Jesus, the one who is truly the Son of God. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great. Well, uh, I'm excited today because it's... Easter Sunday, so that's good. Uh, lots of people are excited about Easter for various reasons, though. Uh, they can be excited because it's a long weekend. And uh, because it's a long weekend, it means that Australians uh, go to their temple. And uh, you'll find it just up on the northern road over here. Uh, it's green, and uh, it's got a big car park out the front. It's generally very full. Uh, Bunnings, Anyone? Because uh, if, there's, if there is a religion in Australia, uh, I think our religion is this, uh, DIY. Uh, it's the thing that turns up on our TVs all the time. It's the thing that we aspire to. It's the thing you think about as you look at your kitchen cupboards and you think they're looking a bit tatty. I, we, I could do that myself. I'm sure I could. And there'll be a YouTube video for that and there'll be a Better Homes and Gardens for that and there'll be a whatever. The religion of Australia seems to be DIY, do it yourself. And at one level, DIY is really empowering, isn't it? Uh, You can do it. You can do it on your own. And uh, with a little bit of Googling, a little bit of TV, uh, yes, you should pull down that wall and uh, knock out that supporting beam and whatever other exciting, risky things that, that we do. Uh, so, so DIY, do it yourself, I think has a lot to, uh, to say about us as Australians. I think we are the home renovators of the world. I- interestingly enough, I-, I say that at some level in jest, but uh, DIY actually dominates our finances. It often dominates our time. And for all intents and purposes, it becomes, for some people, the central focus of their lives. More than that, I think DIY actually explains the way that we think in general as Australians about how we'd come to God. Do it yourself. Uh, We'll make up an idea. We think basically on the balance of probability, God's kind of like this, and I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to be the best person I can be and come before God. I'm going to do religion myself, DIY. I want to reflect this morning on uh, something that gets me a little bit... um, a little bit fired up. Uh, it happens in rooms like this. A- any guesses? It's a funeral parlor. And what happens, I see, is DIY Australia walks into a room with a dead body in it and it doesn't really know what to do. And so here are the sort of poems that get read out. I read an article uh, a couple of weeks ago which is saying, uh, are we ready to move on from religious funerals? And the guy was trying to make the case and saying, yeah, we absolutely should be. There's a whole raft of uh, writing in human history that's disconnected from religion. We've dumped God. We can now face funerals without religion. 
Well, here's what I've observed when I go to funerals like this. And if, and if, you, if you Google this yourself, you'll find the same thing. Helpful poems for funerals. Inside our dreams, this one's called. Where do people go when they die? Somewhere down below or in the sky? I can't be sure, said Grandad, but it seems they simply set up home inside our dreams. Okay? Or this one. Again, I think that you're here. Uh, Here's an attempt to try and bring some meaning to the box that's sitting up the front. Have a listen to this one. This one's called, Don't Cry For Me. Don't cry for me now. I have died. For I'm still here. I'm by your side. My body's gone, but my soul is here. Please don't shed another tear. I am still here. I'm all around. Only my body lies in the ground. I am the snowflake that kisses your nose. I am the frost that nips your toes. I am the sun bringing you light. I am the star shining so bright. I am the rain refreshing the earth. I am the laughter. I am mirth. I am the bird up in the sky. I am the cloud that's drifting by. I am the thoughts inside your head. While I'm still there, I can't be dead. Now at some level, uh, I get why those things get read out. I do. But when we say, I can't be sure, Granddad said, in terms of what our hope is for the person who has died, or we say, I am the star shining so bright of the person who's died, are we really bringing all of our adult mind to bear on the problem of death? Today I want to tell you about something better. Better than these poems. I want to tell you something for adults. Something that you, a thinking adult, can bring to bear on the question of death. Something that will provide you hope and not merely a rhyming couplet. I'm going to tell you today that Jesus was truly raised. That Jesus is alive today and it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. And so this morning, I want to make the case for you that you can trust that this is true and that if it's true, everything will be changed. I'm going to say today that you can believe this for sure and I'm going to ask you to respond and say, yes, I want that hope. I want that offer of life. I want that certainty. See, the problem with DIY is it depends who your master is, doesn't it? How good was that YouTube video? Did the guy who told me to do this really know what he was saying? Today, I want to point you to someone who you can trust. I want you to turn away from DIY to him, to Jesus. And I want to tell you why it's a good idea. Well, let's have a look at some historical evidence. If you're with us on Friday, I use some quotes from historians outside the Bible to say Jesus truly died. He's a real man. He really lived. And today I want to show you in two of those same quotes, if you're here on Friday, you'll see them again, how there's actually evidence outside of the Bible that suggests to us something extraordinary happened after Jesus died. We're going to start with a Jewish historian. This this man's name is Josephus. 
And uh, he writes about Jesus. We looked at a different part of it, about the cross, last time we looked. But I'll read this quote to you. Now about this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accept the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard, uh, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. This is a bit I want you to note. But those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared. Pilate says, Jesus, uh, Pilate says, Josephus, a Jewish historian, says Jesus lived, says he died on the cross, and he says, when he had died, the people who followed him did not stop believing him. After he died. Have a look at the next one. A Roman historian who says this. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for all their abominations called Christians by the populace. So Nero blamed the Christians for the fire is what's going on here. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is really interesting. So Jesus died on the cross. This next bit is amazing. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the first sort of source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous, shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Here's what the Roman historian says. Jesus died. He was crucified. And yet, after that, the superstition, the trust in Jesus, broke out again. Not only in Judea, but also in Rome. That's what a Roman historian says. I want you to think about the geography of this for a second. Uh, before, before we do that, I, I want to show you this little bit from Isaiah, which tells us something that happened 700 years before Jesus. Uh, have a look with me, uh, if you would like to, in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verses 10 to 12 of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Uh, the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament, and someone who's got it open could probably call out the page number. 7... 736. Excellent. Verses 10 to 12. These words were written 700 years before Jesus. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities or their sins. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life unto death and was numbered with the sinners. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What we're saying here is this, here's a part of the Bible written 700 years before Jesus that's saying he'll die for their sins and he'll be raised, and he'll be raised. I want you to see there was a prediction of this message made 700 years before Jesus lived. A prediction of this message. Here's the geography I was talking about. Let's have a look. This is Jerusalem. What, the, what we just read from, uh, from Tacitus was that the message got from Jerusalem 
all the way across to Rome. Now, you might think, well, they just hopped on Skype and, and got the message out. Good. Nice to hear some chuckling. You're allowed to laugh in church. That's all right. Uh, no, they didn't. They didn't email. They didn't text. Uh, this is 2,000 years ago. To give you an idea of how far away it is and how much of a backwater Jerusalem was, I want you to think of something happening in Mount Isa. Do people know where Mount Isa is? Okay, top of Queensland. Is it the centre of very much? No. Although there's lots of mining that happens there, so it's kind of a regional centre perhaps, okay? So I want you to imagine there was a teacher in Mount Isa. And the teacher in Mount Isa said that he was the saviour of the world. And then the local police arrested him, put him in jail, and he died. Right? Mount Isa. What I want you to know is that within 30 years, in Sydney, there's a following of people who claim that this teacher from Mount Isa is the saviour of the world. Does that sound odd to you? The distance from Mount Isa to Sydney is the same distance from Jerusalem to Rome. It's conceptually the same. Mount Isa, a backwater. Jerusalem, a backwater. Rome, the centre of the universe. Well, we obviously know Sydney is the centre of the universe, don't we? So that's, that works very well. But, but here's the thing. How likely is it that a dead regional teacher is changing the, the life of the city at the centre of the empire within 30 years? That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? In fact, Tacitus, this Roman historian, says there are so many of them in Rome that the Roman emperor can reasonably blame them for the fire that burnt down Rome. Can you see? There were so many of them that he can say, these appalling Christians, they're the ones who did it. Well, within 30 years, there's a big group of believers saying Jesus is Lord in Rome and they get blamed for the fire. That's history. That's not from the Bible. You can look this up tonight. Read Tacitus. Read about the fire of Rome. You can read about the debate as to whether Nero set the fire as well. But here's the thing. It happened and Christians were to blame. And they said this regional teacher was alive, was the Lord of the universe. Almost 2,500 kilometres away, within 30 years, there are living churches in Rome, the centre of the universe. I want you to see the attraction of this message. It wasn't that if you became a Christian, you'd get a bigger house, more money, more powerful position in society. On the contrary, you were persecuted. You were ridiculed. It was a religion that started amongst the poor and took hold in the rich and the elite. Those who named Jesus were tortured by Nero. It says they were torn to pieces by wild animals, that he strung them up and set them on fire at night to light the parties in his garden. Why would people follow a dead teacher to their deaths? What had they heard that was so extraordinary that it would grip their lives, that they would gladly give their lives for? 
There's no time for a myth to spring up, is there, in 30 years? This is most of our lifetimes, isn't it? You can remember back 30 years. If someone says this bloke who lived in Jerusalem is now the king of the world, you'd be able to go, hey, I I could travel to Jerusalem. I could ask someone who's been there. Do you get what I'm saying? You can't make this stuff up. There's no time for it to happen. But Jesus is worshipped as God. People are giving their lives for him within 30 years at the centre of the universe in Rome. There's something more amazing. There's something more amazing even than that as we think about the geography. Here's Jesus on a bloody cross, humiliated, turned into a human billboard for the consequences of rebellion against Rome. Do you you remember the sign that was above Jesus? Does anyone know what it said? Jesus, King of the Jews. Why did they put the sign over him? It wasn't to advertise Christianity. Did you know that? There was no Christianity when Jesus died. There were just a group of people who were following him. So here's the cross, okay? There's a sign above him. Why did they put the sign there? King of the Jews. Tell you why. Crucifixion was a billboard for the reason not to rebel against Rome. Rome's in charge here. You want to know who's who's the king of the Jews? Caesar. If you claim the title king of the Jews, have a look at the billboard. This is what happens to you if you claim the title king of the Jews. That's why Jesus was crucified under this sign, not to proclaim his glory but to humiliate him and show Rome's victory. He was crucified where? Anyone know? Yeah, all of those things mumbled out are good. I heard, I heard Calvary, Golgotha, Jerusalem. Let's say he was, he was crucified in Jerusalem, just outside Jerusalem. Now, where did people start talking about the fact that this man was the saviour of the world. Where did people start talking about the fact that this dead, bloody corpse had been raised to life? Where did they start talking about it? Well, what they did was they they drove 500 kilometres up the road to make sure no one had seen it. And then they started a myth that Jesus had come alive again because nobody knew that 500 kilometres up the road. Oh, that wasn't what happened, was it? Where did they start preaching Jesus' resurrection? Where did they start preaching the empty tomb? They started preaching the empty tomb 200 metres away from where he was crucified in the city three days later. Well, they really got into the preaching about 50 days later, but that's hardly a long time, is it? In Jerusalem, here's the cross, Go down the hill, find the tomb. That's where they buried him. In Jerusalem, these people stood up and said, that bloody mess of a man, he's alive. He's alive, he will never die again, and he has been raised up to be the saviour of the world. And in Jerusalem, they said that. What, What do you do if you don't like that message? What do you do if you want to stop Christianity right there and then? What do you do? Well, you go down to the tomb and you roll the stone back and you pull out a stinky corpse, don't you? Dead guy. 
Dead guy. Can you see the dead guy? This is why you can't have a religion that talks about resurrection because here's the dead guy. Oh, no, no, no. The disciples stole the body. Right? Well, my question would be, where did they put it? And you kind of go, duh. They put it somewhere else. They hid it. But here's the thing. How much do we want to honour those that we love who had died? How much more do you think you would like to honour the one you are saying is the risen Lord of the universe? Do you think the place his bones lie would have been forgotten? Do you think the place the disciples laid his body wouldn't have been venerated? Do you think his bones wouldn't have been collected up and honoured? If they knew, if the disciples had stolen his body, they would have honoured his body, wouldn't they? We have no bones, we have no body. In Jerusalem, the disciples proclaimed Jesus was risen and they did so with an empty tomb just down the hill. I want you to hear the audacity of the message. If it was wrong, it should have been provable immediately in Jerusalem. What about the biblical evidence? What does the Bible have to say about the resurrection? Well, let's, uh, let's have a little bit of a look. I want to read to you the whole account of the resurrection in Mark, uh, which is um, in Mark chapter 16. Uh, it's, uh, it's in Mark chapter 16. And again, probably someone can throw me a page number. I'm sorry. 1,022. Fantastic. Here we go. Uh, this is the end of Mark's account of Jesus' life. It says this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Full stop. Okay, now I, I love this. I just think this is absolutely fantastic. And there's a reason that I love it so much. Uh, what were the women taking to the tomb? Call out. Take, they're taking spices. Why were they taking spices to the tomb? Because the body smells. Absolutely, that's fantastic, because the body smells. Here's the thing. This is Jesus' loved ones, his friends, the people who were following him. And what are they bringing to his tomb? Stuff to deal with a dead body. Isn't that embarrassing? Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead. And yet here are his disciples, his followers, bringing spices to anoint a body in a tomb. I don't know about you, but I would find that tremendously embarrassing. Or awkward. Don't you remember that Jesus said they should have been bringing party poppers and balloons, shouldn't they? But they weren't. 
And after they were told that he was raised from the dead, they went, hallelujah, and they started the first church. Doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, trembling and bewildered, they ran away and said nothing to anyone. Awkward. But here it is. It's in the Bible. I want you to see the honesty of the message. Okay, If you're making it up, surely you have the disciples go, of course we knew this. This is going perfectly according to plan. No. They find a tomb empty. They proclaim the resurrection. It's announced to them by an angel, but they don't believe it and they run away afraid. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me it's an incredibly honest account of what had happened on that first day. Talking about honesty, let's have a look at this one. Uh, in John chapter 20, the reading that was, uh, that was brought to us, uh, John chapter 20, uh, and we're going to read verses uh, 24 to 28. Uh, I get a page number? 1088. You're doing great, Lisa. Thank you. You're helping me out very much. 1088. John chapter 20. Have a listen to this. This is the end of John's account of the, uh, of the resurrection. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12. Uh, you can see why he went by Thomas, can't you? Very good. Uh, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, he says. A week later, the disciples were in his house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, you are a doubting little failure. I am so disappointed in you. If only you were a better disciple, I would love you. Oh, hang on, sorry, didn't say that, did he? Uh, then he said to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Can you see how beautifully honest this is? Thomas, one of the disciples, says, I'm not going to believe. Imagine the, the tension amongst the disciples at that point. Why don't you believe us? We're telling you we saw him. Thomas is saying, no, nope. till I touch him, I'm out. See, skeptics are welcome. Skeptics are welcome. In fact, Jesus says, take your skepticism, reach it out and put it into my nail-marked hands. Touch me. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Thomas is utterly convinced his life is set. He will never recant on the fact that he met the risen Jesus and neither will any of the disciples. I want you to see the conviction of the messengers. There's some speculation as to what happens with all the disciples. Um, I've been trying to track it down this week. Uh, if you work hard enough, you'll find that there's an account of every one of them except for John being executed in some gruesome way. They're all pretty spectacular, so do your homework. The point is that each one of these people died saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Did they have anything to gain? Did they gain fame and renown? No, they were beaten. They were put in jail. They were arrested. They were intimidated. And yet they kept their conviction firm. Why? You must ask why. Because they were firmly convinced 
that Jesus was raised from the dead, that they had met him in person and that was unshakable in their lives. What did the resurrection prove? Uh, The Apostle Paul is an interesting case in in his own right. A man who persecuted the church, who claimed to have met the risen Jesus. He went from a man who was throwing Christians into jail to the greatest missionary the Christian church has probably ever seen. How did that happen? He met Jesus. And so he went from someone who threw people in jail to one who said, actually, do you know what? Everyone in the world needs to hear this message. Everyone in the world needs to hear this message. And so here he is in Athens. He's standing in the religious center of Athens. He's standing among the elite, the wise, the smart, the powerful. And this is what he says to them in verses 30 to 32. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying to the smart, to the elite, to the powerful, to the philosophical, you know what? It's not DIY religion. It's not DIY philosophy. One day you will meet the judge of the world. The judge of the world. He is proven that this man Jesus will be the judge of the world because he rose him up from the dead. The one who will judge the world is Jesus. And the proof is, he's not dead anymore. The proof in the message is that Jesus is the judge of all. How can he be the judge? Because he's still alive. He will be the judge of all. So I'm saying this morning, this message that the people in the tomb heard, He is risen. He is not here in the tomb. See the place where they laid him. It's interesting. Even the the angel says, evidence, look and see. Check it out for yourself. See the empty shelf where his body lay. He is not here. You can believe that he is risen. And that means? Surely we have to ask that question. I, I, I reckon it's true. But what does it mean if it is true? What does it mean if it's true? Well, here's the start. Here's the start. This room is different. This room is different. And uh, I want you to hear how it can be different. Here's what I say as I take a a funeral. I, I want you to hear how different it is than poetry and good wishes. Listen to this. We come together to mourn a relative to honour a departed friend, to dispose reverently of the mortal body and to show sympathy with the bereaved. We believe that those who die in Christ share eternal life with him. Therefore, in faith and hope, we offer our prayer of thanksgiving and trust to God in whose loving care we leave our friend. We recall the certainty of our own coming death and judgment and we proclaim that Christ is risen, that those who believe in him will rise with him and that we are united with them in him. It's so different. Jesus was raised. This person will be raised. You will be raised to meet them if you trust in him. Can you see the difference? Can you hear the hope that we have. Yes, we will mourn, 
but we will not mourn as those who lack hope. What difference does it make? Real hope equals better funerals. Real hope equals better funerals. You will cry. I weep at funerals. Make no mistake, we're not making light of death, but we are talking about a real hope. We're talking about real joy. We're talking about the fact that we can expect to be reunited if we ourselves are trusting in Jesus. It's solid, it's historical, it's geographical, it's biblical. There's a real hope that you can take hold of, that you will be reunited with those you love if they and you are trusting in him. What else does it mean if Jesus is truly alive? Well, I want to say when you trust the living Lord, you meet and make a new community. A new community. If Jesus is alive, he is the Lord of a group of people who are saying, he is the saviour of the world. He is the hope in my life. That community, that's a real community. That means you shouldn't be alone. You shouldn't be alone. You should find family. You should find hope. You should find community. What else does Jesus' resurrection mean? Full forgiveness. How can I know that the man who died on the cross actually paid the price for my sin? Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified. But you know what? Other people were crucified. Crucifixion itself doesn't solve sin. Our sin is removed because Jesus carried the weight of our sin, your sin, my sin, laid on him. He died in our place to pay the price for our sin. How can I know? Because he didn't stay dead. Because once he'd paid the price of death for our sins, he was raised up to show that it was totally done. Your sin, my sin, can be deleted, trashed, the hard drive erased, the cloud backup destroyed. There is nothing left. The Bible says there is no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means for you and I is that you can have confidence in a fresh start. A fresh start. There's one more thing that it means to have a living Lord. I love this passage so much. You see, we have a Jesus who walked on earth, dusty feet, real blood, worked a trade, lived in a family, experienced human life for 30 years, and then bled and died for our salvation. That man, is now raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. Why does that matter? I'll tell you why. Have a listen to these amazing verses from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet He did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A living Lord means that you can find confidence before the living God. The one who stands at the right hand of the Father gets us 
knows what it's like to cry and weep at a funeral because he wept at the friend's funeral. Knows what it means to be under anguish and distress. And that one is seated at the right hand of the Father. God gets us because Jesus speaks for us. How do we join Friday and Sunday together? We say on Friday, sins are paid. That's good news. That's why it's a good Friday. Well, this is good Sunday. What does that mean? Death is defeated. The great enemy that writes zero at the end of your life, that if you don't have this hope, says you are worm food. No amount of poetry gets around that, guys. No amount of poetry gets around it. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're worm food. It's all over. You're done. This speaks a better word. It says death is defeated. It says resurrection is possible. It says you and I will live again. It says this in Romans. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead... He cannot die again. Isn't that great? He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. That's why I love him. That's why he took over the ancient world. That's why within 300 years, Christianity went from being the persecuted minority to being the official religion of the Roman Empire. Caesar was converted resurrection, hope beyond the grave makes that possible. So how can we be joined with him? I want to offer that to you today. You need to give up DIY religion. Don't cobble it together. Don't put some sellies, no more gaps. Don't put some glue there and hammer something over the top. Don't make do. Get rid of DIY and replace it with knowing for a fact that it has been done for you. It's all been done for you. Sin is paid. Death is defeated. Find it in Jesus. So today I want to give you a chance. A chance as an adult to say, I'm in. I want that hope. I want that Lord. I want to know that fresh start. There's a prayer I'm going to put up on the screen here. It's a simple prayer. We prayed it on Friday, but I want to give you an opportunity today. Maybe you came on Friday and you didn't pray it then. Maybe today is a day you think, I'm in. It's a simple prayer. It says this, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. I don't want to pay the price for my sin. It says, I'm sorry for my sin, my rebellion, my selfishness, my lust, my lying, my cheating. I'm sorry for my sin. I know that I've hurt you and others, God. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. I'm going to pray it now. I'm going to leave a gap. If you want to pray this prayer with me, you can repeat it after me. You might want to do it silently. You might want to do it out loud. If you want to do it out loud, go for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross.
I am sorry for my sin. I know that I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen. It's what he died for. It's a sure hope. It's a great offer. It leads to better funerals and a better life. And I hope you take hold of it today. Amen.